I hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Uh, the scriptures uh, clearly teach us that uh, we live in a world that is under a curse. And that curse is uh, manifested in all types of uh, tragic ways. Uh, it's great heartache in life. Uh, people's lives are broken. People are prisoners. Great tragedies uh, sometimes hunt us and knock upon our door, and we have great questions as to why these things happen to us. And yet in the darkness uh, framed by those types of issues and questions, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 uh, breaks upon us in incredible light. The words comfort, comfort. That amidst all the heartache, all the brokenness, uh, all of our loneliness, God comes and offers a sure word of comfort. Uh, the announcement of comfort is based upon the reality that God has made provision uh, for restoration. That's really the problem with we uh, world, world today. We live in a world under curse. It's broken. God's going to restore it. That's the promise of comfort and that he is able to affect it by his word and his presence. And that's the essence of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. The context is most instructive. As you know, Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 is predominantly, not totally, but predominantly a message of judgment. Judgment because his people have turned away from him to worship idols. 
because of that, he's going uh, to bring uh, judgment. Uh, the immediate uh, message breaks upon uh, the nation of Judah and the prospect of the Babylonian captivity. As a prophet, Isaiah is foretelling uh, judgment uh, in Babylon, and it is yet incurred. But, but nonetheless, he is foretelling what is going to occur the Babylonian captivity, the invasion of the nation, uh, the terrible destruction of the nation, in particular uh, the temple, and the carrying away of uh, much of the population into captivity. They're going to be made prisoners. And what do prisoners do but languish in a jail? And then God comes with the offer and the promise of comfort. Again, they have trusted in idols and alliances, and because they have turned away from God, he will bring judgment. And again, the immediate fulfillment is to the nation in captivity. But as we shall see, the promise goes beyond restoration back to the land, to the coming of Christ. And the church is the greater fulfillment. As we go through this portion of the chapters of Isaiah chapter 42, Chapter 66, we're really dealing with three time periods. The first deals with the nation, the nation of Judah, uh, released from Babylon. Then it has a more far-reaching promise uh, to the coming of Christ. And then beyond the coming of Christ to, to us as a church today. Three important time periods. Uh, so what is the basis of uh, this promise of comfort? The hearts that are broken, lives that are shattered, uh, prospects uh, dashed, broken lives, the curse that has a far-reaching impact upon everything about us, from our bodies to our minds. What's the basis for comfort? Well, the dramatic and sudden announcement of comfort is based upon the reality that God's justice has been satisfied and that God has made provision for restoration in verses 1 to 2. The object of the imperative, the words comfort are, are imperatives. I mean, we might translate them, take comfort. Based upon what? Well, the first basis of comfort is the object, my people. It's a covenantal concept. It's a reminder that the covenant that God has with Abraham and the eternal covenant of redemption is still intact. That God's sure word of promise based upon his covenantal loyalty has not changed. That we are his people and that he is our God. Regardless of the effects of the curse, his covenant with us is still intact. His word is not broken. The people in captivity will see this as a measure of hope. This is anticipated for us in the prophet, the 12th chapter, Isaiah chapter 12, the first verse. You will say to me on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger has turned away and thou dost comfort me. 
It's the prospect that the nation had sinned, God punishes them, uh, but now the punishment is fulfilled. This has a more far-reaching effect for each of us in the New Testament. If you have your New Testaments, I ask you to turn to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25 speaks of a righteous man. And he was waiting for the fulfillment of this far-reaching concept of consolation. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation of Israel. Exactly the prospect of comfort. He had been waiting for the comfort of God to break upon the nation in his own day. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. In other words, Simeon understood that the more far-reaching prospect of the promise of consolation extended way beyond return from the Babylonian captivity. It was to be fulfilled in a greater person, Christ. That's what he was waiting for. Verse 30, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Uh, He realizes that in the coming of Christ, the true final comfort of Israel is dawned. That the Babylonian captivity was only a foreshadowing of greater problems, and yet God would answer them all in the coming of his Son, the Lord Christ. The basis of comfort beyond the covenantal reality is in the content of the three clauses of verse 2. The effect of the warfare is over, iniquity is removed, and she has received double for her sins. The immediate fulfillment, again, is that Israel paid in the captivity because the captivity was over with, and God's anger was satisfied. The way to return to the land was now open. For us, it's reconciliation in Christ. That God has reconciled to us through the gift of His Son. He initiates the reconciliation. He has reconciled us to Himself by His Son. The warfare is over. We don't think in those terms today, but the Scriptures think exactly in those terms. Uh, That God is angry at sinners, and yet He provides Himself It's the ultimate comfort. And Christ comes and he ends the warfare. It's exactly, I think, the import of the great words of Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest peace treaty of all time was God sending his son to establish peace between himself and sinners. I mean, you and I can conjure up the great peace treaties of all of history. That signed by MacArthur on the battleship Missouri comes to my mind. The end of the war in Japan. That is nothing to the reality that God has ended his warfare against sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can have peace with God. Iniquity has been paid for. 
In many respects, the church need to needs to recover what that means. Paid for in full. Total and complete payment for sin is the basis of forgiveness. Is what we have in Christ. This is uh, much of the message will come to us as uh, Isaiah will unfold the magnitude of his uh, promises. Uh, but simply read to you uh, from perhaps the most familiar promise of the coming of the servant son uh, that he will satisfy iniquity and he will justify the many. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. That Christ comes in full, full payment for wrath and justify the many, his people, his covenantal people. I'm very fond of the words of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, that he has torn up the certificate of judgment that existed against us because it has been paid in full. Again, the church needs to recover that message because we oftentimes say, well, Christ uh, satisfied my past sins, uh, but my future sins, my present sins, I need to... Uh, uh, keep confessing and, and keep repenting and all these things will save me. I mean, he did his part, now I must do my part. My friend, when you confessed your sin at salvation, he forgave you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. They've been paid in full. Colossians chapter 2 and verse four, 14. He has satisfied the certificate of decrees that existed as judgments against you, paid them in full. I understand time will not allow to deal with some of the theological questions that it raises, but I'm simply acknowledging to you that the sacrifice for sin upon the cross was for every sin. And the liability has been discharged. And so we are forgiven. You know, by the way, we celebrate that in the church all the time. The sacrament of baptism. Just simply a reminder of the promise that our sins have been washed away. We are cleansed. And the reason that we practice that sacrament continually, notwithstanding the imperative, is to remind ourselves of the staggering import of what that promise means. That we were cleansed forever. And the sacrament is a continual reminder of that promise. Washed forever, cleansed. Therefore, Christ is a real comfort, isn't he? Because he begins the cure, the total cure. That he is our present help, and therefore the ultimate and fulfillment of uh, the imperatives of uh, Isaiah chapter 40, take comfort. The nation's going to return from captivity, but we have a greater comfort in Christ. Again, it's a good reminder in terms of uh, application. Uh, you get discouraged in your Christian faith. Uh, perhaps you do something that you think is so terrible that it's, uh, it's all over with. Read the basis of your comfort. Isaiah chapter 40. That the warfare is over. You have peace with God. The iniquity has been paid in full. And God is satisfied.
marvelous reminder of the true comfort, the very essence of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. That we are right with God. I understand our, fee, our problems. We Typically, it's a problem of feelings. I understand emotions are powerful. Feelings uh, on occasion need to be dealt with. Uh, but this is the settled legal reality of what God has done in His Son. And our feelings don't change that reality. I think the more we recover the fullness of the reality of what God has done for us in Christ, the more the reality of true comfort will break upon us. The great question in the text is, how did Israel and the church come to such comfort? Again, the answer is in verses 3 to 8. The promise of restoration is in the divine presence, verses 3 to 5, and then the word of God, verses 6 to 8. First, God is going to come and rescue Israel out of Babylon in a new exodus. And for us, he's going to come and rescue us out of sin in the greatest exodus of all time. One of the themes that will form much of the comfort of the second half of the book of Isaiah is that of a new exodus. Uh, the coming of Israel out of Babylon was uh, couched in the language of exodus. The greatest redemptive event of all time for the nation of Israel was the exodus out of Egypt. And now it's going to break again in another exodus out of Babylon. And for us, the greatest of all exodus in the work of Christ as he leads his people into the everlasting glories of eternity. Now, the coming of God in the divine presence in this new exodus is captured for us in verse 3. Prepare the way and make smooth a highway for our God. The construction metaphor speaks of the coming of God to rescue his people. Uh, the language of desert and wilderness speak to Exodus. This is confirmed for us, uh, for example, Isaiah chapter 11, the 16th verse. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came out of the land of Egypt. Well, the coming out of the land of Egypt is uh, the great redemptive event of the Exodus. But the highway of the people of God coming out of captivity to go back to the land is another Exodus. The greater fulfillment of us in, in the greatest Exodus of all time. Uh, the Exodus by Moses and Pharaoh is but a foreshadowing of the greatest Exodus of all time. And if you are a Christian, you are a participant in that Exodus. We are transiting this world, going out of this world on the greatest highway of all time into the distant shores of eternal and everlasting glory. For the children of Israel, it was the promised land, but a foreshadowing of eternity. It's very interesting uh, in the language of Isaiah chapter 40, this construction metaphor of making a path smooth, of lowering the mountains, of raising the valleys, of again establishing a, a new road. 
are used in each of the four Gospels as being fulfilled in Christ. They had an immediate fulfillment, of course, and a return from the Babylonian captivity. It was only a foreshadowing. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. Verses 2 to 3. Again, the writers of the Gospels uh, pick up the language of Isaiah chapter 40 and make their greater fulfillment to be in John the Baptist who comes announcing the coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The greater fulfillment in Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 78. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That John is the herald of the last exodus through the wilderness of this world, eventuating into heaven. As an immediate fulfillment from Babylon, a greater fulfillment in Christ, meaning that the last great exodus is occurring. Started by Christ. The Old Testament text, Isaiah 45, speaks of the revelation of the glory of God and that all flesh will see it. This is an eschatological statement, but the fulfillment has begun in Jesus. That's something of the language, I think, captured for us by John the Apostle in his gospel. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld his glory. We beheld Christ in his glory. That the end time glory of God has broken upon the nations in the person of his Son. the basis of comfort, that God has come to answer the great questions of life in his Son. The prospect, of course, is the comfort that he begins in the gospel. So we have the promise of restoration from Babylon, the promise of restoration from sin and the coming of Christ. Can we really believe that? Is that really true? And so the prophet will answer that question, verses 6 to 8. It's a promise of restoration based upon the Word of God. But the promises of God are sure and certain. In contrast to the promises of man that are like the grass, and that human glory is like the flower of the field that will eventually fade, under the summer sun. Now, the, all of the answers of man, the provisions of man, the provisions of government eventually are temporal. They will all fade like the grass and like flowers shed their bloom, but the Word of God will stand forever. Now, the simile is to find for us 
Isaiah chapter 40, the seventh verse. Surely the people are grass. It means that we are temporary and transitional. Our achievements are all ephemeral. It's exactly the language uh, that's used by Apostle James, chapter 1, as he warns the people from being seduced by riches. He says the rich man is like the grass of the field, like the flower. He's temporary. Eventually he will shed his bloom. No man carries his earthly wealth into eternity. They have their season, they have their times but eventually they are of no count whatsoever before the eternal God. This is something of the words of James in chapter 4 and verse 14. He says, you're like a vapor that appears for a little while. So I reminded that we are utterly transitional, utterly temporary, but God is eternal. In terms of Israel, they put their hopes in idols and in military alliances running all over the world of their day to find alliances that will keep them safe. But ultimately, there is no safety from God. And the alliances were unsure, uncertain promises, and they ultimately all failed. None of it worked. They prayed to their idols. They didn't work. God raised up Babylon. She invaded the nation and carried them off into captivity. It's a great reminder for each of us. I understand we base our lives in many cases on the promises of men. Contracts, promises from government. Ultimately, they are all going to fail because they are less than eternal. Only God and His Word are eternal. And when He speaks, it is sure and certain. You can count on it. You can base your life upon it. You can take it to the bank. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God shall stand forever. The point of the text is that God is promising restoration, eternal restoration, and His promises are sure because His Word is eternal and lasts from everlasting to everlasting. No covenant of man will last forever. No promise of man will last forever. Eventually they will all fade like the grass, like the spring flower about to face the hot August sun in Oklahoma. But there is one promise that will not fade. There is one flower that will never fade, and that is the Word of God. That God delivers on His promises and none can stop Him or get in His way. I mean, the immediate fulfillment, again, is to the children of Israel that will soon be in the Babylonian captivity. God is saying, I'm going to set you free. Based upon what? Based upon His Word. And therefore, it is sure and certain. Now, for us, the ultimate greater fulfillment is that we are forgiven. We are sons of the Most High God. We are exiting this temporal world following our shepherd with the great promise of eternity. How can we base that upon anything other than the promise of the gospel and the fact that the Word of God is eternal and forever, from everlasting to everlasting? All of the promises of men will eventually unravel and fail. 
They will ultimately disappoint and lead to ruin. There's something of an illustration of this. this is an article I read in the current uh, uh, Forbes magazine. It's a guy who uh, promising that you can live a longer life, and uh, the promise begins with a physical that will cost you $25,000. That's a pretty expensive physical. And so he can find out what's wrong with you and fix it all. You know what? It's only temporal. The word of God and the promise of the gospel is forever. That Jesus Christ has come and he has begun the end time restoration in our souls. And he will complete that restoration in eternity based upon his word that is sure and certain and it will last forever. I will tell you a fact that's true. There is no inhabitant of heaven today that has ever been disappointed by the word of God. Heaven shouts to us and says, trust the word of God. It's sure and true. What God says will happen. What he has started in Jesus Christ has begun. And all of the inhabitants of heaven are a testimony of the promises of God that they are sure and certain and will last forever. And the section end again in verse 8, in terms of the promises of the gospel, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. There's something of this in the language of the psalmist in the 103rd Psalm, verses 15 to 17. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it is no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep in his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The word loving kindness is a word that is very, very important in all of the Hebrew Scripture. It's the covenant loyalty of God to His people. That God has made a covenant with us, a contract with us. It begins with Abraham, but ultimately it's fulfilled by Christ. And that covenant stands not based upon who we are or what we have done, but upon who Christ is and what He has done. And that word is sure and certain as Christ is the Son of God. And again, the immediate context for Israel is the power of Babylon and their god Marduk. Where is Babylon today? But erased essentially from the civilization in which we live. Marduk? Who's heard of Marduk? Gone because they are immaterial. They once had a momentary expression of glory in the civilizations and history of man. Now they're virtually gone, effaced, and erased forever. But again, the text has a greater fulfillment in the life of the church. It's very instructive to me that the Apostle Peter cites Isaiah chapter 40 and the concept of the eternality of the Word of God in his first epistle in the first chapter. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 23 to 24. For you've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is the living and abiding Word of God. And here's what Peter says about that living and abiding Word of God. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. The point of the text in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the verses that I've just read is that the new birth is caused by the Word of God. It's very important in Peter's day because many were enticed by the glory and the power of Rome. It was the dominant world power of its day. Its civilization was virtually unprecedented. Where is Rome today? Virtually gone as a world power. But the Word of God abides and lasts forever. Look at the promise of God in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's one of the greatest expressions of the promises of God in all of the New Testament, based upon what? The Word of God. And the Word of God is eternal. It lasts and abides forever. In other words, the promise of our salvation is made certain by the divine Word. And the gospel is the divine Word creates and begins the end-time restoration. And that's our ultimate consolation in the gospel itself. It's reminded to us that the Word of God is creative. It comes and it creates. Hearts are in disarray and confusion. Lives are broken. Promises dash. People in despair. And the Word of God comes and creates life and consolation. What Peter is telling us, again, is that the end-time promise of comfort is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and his gospel as the eternal word of God. And born anew, we will achieve the everlasting glory of the promises of life everlasting. I mean, think again of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Everything in my physical life fades. Everything in my physical life gets tarnished. I mean, age itself is capturing them all. Not so the gospel. Not so the heart made new by the power of the word of God. It's the reminder that for us, eternal consolation is in the new birth, that Christ has started it in the gospel and he will affect it based upon the eternal word of God. I know in your life, your heart might, may be broken over a myriad of things. Take comfort. The gospel will achieve its terminal end in everlasting glory. Every wrong you could ever imagine will be fixed. Everything that's ever been broken in your life will be repaired eternally based upon the eternal word of God in Christ, our everlasting comfort and consolation. 
that the word causes the new creation and it will stand forever. And nothing can change it or cause it to fade. By the way, there's a great application of this truth in uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, namely uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7. Uh, something of a construction metaphor here, much like Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. The rock is Christ. He is sure. He is eternal. He is everlasting. You base your life on the words of men. Those words are temporal, ephemeral. They will ultimately fade. You base your life on Christ. Your life is based upon a rock. In that sense, your salvation is untouchable. A promise that will never, ever be defiled and never, ever fade. Something of a summons of the gospel, if you're not a Christian, build your life upon the gospel. You've built your life upon a rock. And the rains and judgments and the wind and the violent winds of the greatest storm of all time that is yet to come will come and attack your house and your house will stand because of the rock who is Christ. Again, the gospel, the word of God. Well, Isaiah 40 ends uh, verses 9 to 11 with a summons, last great movement of the text, namely that we are to proclaim the good news of deliverance and consolation. Again, for Israel is that they would come out of captivity in a new exodus. For us as Christians, that we have ultimate comfort and consolation in the gospel and the work accomplished for us and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses that very concept of evangelism. It's the good news that God will come for Israel, rescue them from Babylon. In Jesus, he has already come and has begun the process of the glories of the new creation. Isaiah is saying, go, go tell that message to the captives in Babylon. For us, it's go tell people of, of the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Go tell the good news. Isaiah says, do not fear, here is your God. That's exactly what John the Baptist is doing in his brief ministry. Here is God, do not fear. Here is the Lord, here is Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40 and the promise of everlasting consolation and comfort. Very interesting, there's two uh, images that close out this uh, uh, portion of Isaiah 40. Uh, verse 10, God is a mighty warrior and God is a tender shepherd, verse 11. Uh, David, the great uh, psalmist, writes in a psalm that I suspect all of you know, perhaps some of you by heart. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they, they comfort me. David knew the far-reaching import that his words ultimately broke upon Christ. And you know what? 
Our shepherd is armed and dangerous, and nobody better ever try to mess with his sheep. Even in the depths of despair of the valley of the shadow of death, David knew that his ultimate comfort was in Christ, armed to protect his sheep forever. And so he found comfort in rod and staff. That he will bring us with him in victory and gently gather us unto himself as the great shepherd of the sheep. Ultimately, these uh, concepts have their great fulfillment in Christ as the good shepherd. John says in 10th chapter of his gospel, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's one of the greatest promises in all of the scripture. The majesty of the work of Christ as our great shepherd. We oftentimes frame the gospel as we are desperately trying to hold on to God and we find out that the ultimate reality is that he's holding upon us and will never let us go based upon the eternality of the word of God and the certainty and surety of his word to keep and to preserve and protect us. A word that has already started in our hearts through the gospel. How does that end, by the way? I'll give you a couple reminders from the last book of the New Testament. Now, Revelation chapter 7, 17th verse. The Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Greater expression of that is in Revelation 21, in the fourth verse. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In other words, the prospect of everlasting glory has begun in our hearts in the gospel, but it will achieve eternal, everlasting fulfillment when he comes to claim us for himself. And everything that has ever been broken about our lives will be repaired in everlasting glory. Every disappointment, every discouragement, every wrong righted. I love the language, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because of the fall, we shed lots of tears in life. God will fix it all, and it's begun the fix in his son. And therefore, the end-time victory is just as sure based upon the certainty of the Word of God. That is something about that promise that is ultimately incredibly haunting and inviting. Now, we do live in a world. It's a world of chaos because of sin and judgment. But we are being shepherded and led through it on the last great exodus of all time that Christ is our shepherd. He is armed. He is protecting us. Every soul that has come to him through belief in him will ultimately cross the last great river into the sure, certain promise of everlasting glory. 
It's the majesty of Christ. The lamb at the center of the throne, John says, will come and fix it all. I don't know what wounds you carry in your life. I know we all carry them. Uh, maybe another metaphor is what baggages you might carry. I understand life sometimes is a difficult, challenging prospect. Lots of hurts, lots of pain. You come to Christ. He's begun the end-time restoration, and he'll fix everything at the end. And no son of his will ever be disappointed in his promise of the gospel. And so, in the midst of your life, take comfort. Be of good cheer. The end time consolation and restoration prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 40 has begun for us in Jesus. And in Jesus, God will make good on every one of his promises. Hold it, draw near to it, and you will never be disappointed. And may God in his grace comfort your heart amidst all of the vagaries of life with the sure, certain prospect of the hope of the gospel, a hope that has started, but a hope that will be realized when he comes to claim us for himself into everlasting glory. Amen.